Welcome to Carbon Trading Chronicles, the podcast that untangles the complexities and potentials of emissions trading. Whether you're an industry expert or simply curious about how emissions trading supports the energy transition, this podcast is your platform to join the conversation. Welcome to the second episode of the Carbon Trading Chronicles. My name is Stefan Feuchtinger. I'm head of research and analytics here at Vertis. Uh, with me today is uh, Matteo Mazzoni, the director of analytics uh, in ICAS. Uh, we have uh, Gerge Sabo, principal investment advisor with Vertis. And then we also have uh, Riham Waba, senior uh, analyst for carbon here with us in Vertis as well. What do we talk about? One of the main topics, I would say, that have been impacting the price of carbon this year, and that is the gas market. But why really do we talk about that, right? Well, first of all, the power market is about responsible for about half of the emissions that we see in uh, the entire EU ETS, and uh, really is the most trading intensive part, right? So half of it half of the emissions, but if you look at how much is traded, hedging, etc., we see actually much more uh, importance uh, than something else. Now, this trading activity, uh, in effect, is then influenced where the margins are, right? If you're running a power plant, let's say a gas power plant, then depending on how profitable that one is, uh, you will basically decide how you go around your trading activity. Now, this is called the, the clean spark spread, and we can talk much more about that. But this clean spark spread is a function of the gas and power price, and obviously also the EUA price, but mostly those two. But the power price is actually mostly a function of the gas price because of the merit order. Now, if you're not from the power sector, none of that will make a lot of sense, but that's why we're having this podcast today. So I'm happy that we can go into that in just a second. Now, before we go, uh, I would like to hear a little bit the trader perspective here from Gerge. And um, we have a, a, a little, uh, you could almost say, yeah, recurring theme in this podcast where we're asking people if they're bullish or bearish, bullish or bearish for EUAs, without giving much of an explanation. So let's start off uh, this little round here and ask everybody, Gergi, are you bullish or bearish EUAs? Yeah, I'm a long-term still bullish, but short-term and mid-term I'm bearish. And that was very much to the point. He cheated here a little bit by telling us the long-term and the short-term. Riham, what do you think? Are you bullish uh, or bearish? Well, I'd yes. like to adopt this uh, economist answer somehow. Like, it depends. But uh, for me, like, if I look at the short-term to medium-term, I'd say that I'm sideways to bearish. Sideways to bearish. Uh, Matteo, what about you? Just bearish. Just bearish. So... A little bit too, bear too much bearishness here because myself, I'm a little bit bearish here as well, especially as we're heading into the end of the year. But we're going to explore these um, th these elements in a second and then also collect thoughts if we're still bearish by the end of this episode. Let's speak about gas now. So first of all, um, uh, Riham, if you can uh, run us through a little bit the impact that gas had over the last couple of months on carbon. Um, so... I'd like for us to look a little bit uh, further than the past few months. So if we look at the correlation between the gas and EUAs, um, I think last year was a good example about the relationship, the positive correlation between EUAs and gas, um, so that you could see the two moving together, especially during the time of the energy crisis. However, um, this could be explained due to a lot of factors, of course, and you could see also a feedback loop between the, um, the gas and the EUAs. But it was important and what's noticeable on the charts, if you look at the normalization charts basically you can see this relationship broken between the EUAs and the gas starting um, beginning of this year and this is just connected to the health of supply and 
also, um, so you could see the two the e-ways and uh, the gas just moving in different directions. Um, recently, though, we could see certain events that, especially in Australia, so the strikes in Australia, they've been quite pivotal for the UAs and we could see the market sensitive to it. So um, it has created sensitivity on the gas market. Um, to me, the sensitivity was a bit overdone and it translated into another overdone sensitivity on the UAs market. Uh, but I'd like to hear from others if they share the same opinion or not. Let's throw the ball then over to Gergi and see, um, you know, speaking of sensitivity, and speaking of what's going on in the market right now, what do you see as the key moving uh, pieces here? Yeah, as, as, as you rightly introduced, I, I think the key uh, moving element is the hedging demand, uh, especially on the Lignite and coal power plant side. And I think it's an um, amazingly interesting curve structure in which we have a um, contango in the gas curve in the beginning, meaning that um, the spot price was uh, priced lower than the winter and the rest of the uh, the next year, and also uh, 25. And later on, for 26 and 27, we have a, mo a moderating gas prices. And basically, based on that shape, the, the power prices is, is priced, uh, that means that the hedging demand from the coal power plants comes from the, this winter, the next year, and the year after, and that's it. And I think the, when, when, we're, when we're talking about correlations, it's interesting to see, to, to say, okay, which gas? It's, it's about the front gas or the front year or, or potentially 2025, 26-ish. So I think the key game is, is to what extent the, the lignite plants can hedge I think uh, the European power sector, I mean, that's a fact, um, it uh, undergoes a great transformation. So mm -hmm. there's lots of renewables yeah. uh, coming. We had a very special last year where uh, we had very low hydro situation, uh, hydro levels mm -hmm. and, and um, some outages in the, in the nuclears. So yeah. they were very, very bad conditions for, uh, for the fossils. So we needed lots of fossils and lo lots of gas. And that, that bad conditions are away. In addition, we have a lots of lots of new renewables coming online. I'm, I'm smiling and you know why I'm smiling yeah. because I remember the discussion we had at the beginning of the year when you came to me in January and said, oh, um, power emissions are going to drop by 25%. And I'm yeah. like, Gergi, power emissions don't just drop 25% <laughs> just like that. And it's like, no, 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 because uh, we have those elements lining up and at the same time, more stable nuclear, hydro levels, etc. And as we were speaking, I just looked at the latest data that we have at least that shows that power emissions so far this year are down 23%. So <laughs> not too bad. Uh, I better listen more closely uh, for the rest of the podcast to what you have to say. Thanks for that. Let's move it over a little bit now to Matteo and um, maybe you can give us a bit of an insight of the gas market itself, right? Since it's such a major impact on everything, let's maybe focus a little bit first on the supply side of things and then look further into demand and see how those two come together and then try to draw some conclusions, what it means really for power and what it means for carbon. Yeah, thanks, Stefan, and thanks for having me. Uh, I think the starting point is definitely the ongoing quest that Europe is on to try to replace 40% of the gas supply mm. in 2021 coming from Russia mm -hmm. with other sources. Mm. And obviously, it's, an, it's not an easy task to do it, especially overnight. Europe managed to do that last year, increasingly relying yeah. on, let's say, LNG coming from the US, not only the US, mm -hmm. uh, but that was definitely uh, the key factor uh, that helped the European Union to actually, you know, keep the lights on, as we, as yeah. we say. But at the same time, uh, a major role was played by, uh, by demand. By demand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, apart from Norway, Norway, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. There are other contributions. Norway yeah. played a, a critical role in securing, you know, guaranteeing that supply uh, kept flowing. 
you know, a southern corridor, a mix of Algeria and Azerbaijan mm-hmm. gas helped, you know, to relieve tensions in the south of Europe and mm-hmm. several factors. But if you if you look at the two main ones, it's definitely LNG coming in at a higher price, a very high price. Yeah. Last year, we touched 350 euro per megawatt hour last August, which was like super record high. And then demand, let's say, dropping to levels that were not even seen during the 2008 crisis. And then the surprising element happened, which was a really warm winter. And all of a sudden, storages got really full, right? And we, as we looked, I think, into into spring, uh, storages were more full than, um, than 2020 even and have remained so for most of the year. Do you see that, I mean, we're somewhere... F- in European storage is full by 95% right now. Do you see that Yeah, the supply side is really fine right now? Isn't the supply side looking relatively good at the moment? At the moment. That, <laughs> that, that's the correct term. <laughs> at the moment, it, it does look good. And I would say that if you look at the, at the near term, October and November, uh, we see risk of actually going back to or observing what we, what we saw last year when in beginning of November, there were uh, cargoes, LNG uh, ships uh, in the Atlantic waiting for prices to go up because storage was full and there was, you know, mm. nowhere to nowhere actually to put, to put gas. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we, we, we see that there is a risk of that happening, but it, it's more related to the fact that, you know, shippers, traders, they know how to play that game. Uh, so it, it's not going to be the same. But um, when I say that in the near term, the, we are, let's say, the supply is, is actually balanced, is, is, is still related to a very tight margin. Because as, as, we, as we saw in, in August, and we're still suffering from that, mm-hmm. strike in Australia. <laughs> Which is more, less than 3% of LNG that comes to Europe or something like that, right? It's, it's no, really it's 0%, it's 0% of, of LNG that comes to Europe. It's 4%, I mean, the, the maximum yeah. was 4% of the LNG or global LNG supply, but all that LNG usually goes to, to Asia. So Taiwan, yeah. South Korea, Japan, a bit, a bit of China. Not not a single ton or million cubic meters come to Europe. And yet TTF prices really jumped on the back of that uh, quite a bit because I think it just means that we had uh, ships that were derouted. And if, of course, there is less LNG from Australia going to Asia, then that has an impact on the flows overall, right? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the tight, uh, the supply and demand balances are super tight in, in Europe and, and we really need all that LNG, plus we need the demand destruction, like half-half what uh, can make the supply and demands, demand in the end uh, make balanced. Earlier, like half a year ago, we had a problem that there, there wasn't enough regasification capacity. So even there were uh, LNGs floating mm. around uh, the port, so there was just not enough capacity to regasify. But that, that seems to be solved. So there's, there's some more floating terminals added in Germany. and then uh, more Especially Germany, right? They yeah, made yeah. a huge effort there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's more to come. But there's a, an, another problem is, is the word global supply and demand balances, in particular on, on the LNG market. So whatever happens in Japan with a nuclear comeback or, or in China we, on, the, on the weather has a huge impact on, on the LNG prices. And that automatically translates into TTF mm. and power and 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 uh, EU in the on, on the back so to to, to to kind of put that in perspective so we have a supply problem if you will uh, or as if something happens we could have a supply problem coming from Russia obviously that's still the case I guess to an extent but then you have LNG and LNG is really impacted by the global flows 
Uh, so you could have potentially there weather that is changing in one part of the world that has an impact. But then you also have potentially bottleneck in, in actually the regasification, right? So there's all these elements that come together. And, and on top of that, let's say some uh, minor issues like shipping, right? Uh, there was concerns about the Panama uh, Canal basically being blocked or having heavy delays and because of that rerouting of ships. So there's really there's quite some elements here coming together already on the supply side. Yet, maybe especially because we are somewhere around 95% full, that's maybe right now a little bit less of a concern. It starts to be a bit less of a concern unless we have a very harsh winter, right? Yeah, but uh, the way how uh, Europe's infrastructure was was set is, is basically we were constantly relying on a so-called pipe supply mm. supply and the storage has a flexibility role meaning that traditionally it's about 400 bcm so billion cubic meter mm-hmm. uh, mark is the european demand and supply and out of that it's about 100 110 bcm is the storage and usually the the demand is is, is more heavy on the winter because it's a uh, heating related so in the winter time, not only you need all the pipeline, but in addition, you need the storage as well. But having uh, the storage at ninety-five percent doesn't mean that, uh, Th- that you have s- like sufficient that. amount yeah. of, of gas, gas right? yeah. for a, for a cold for winter. winter. Yeah. yeah, and of course, I mean, you 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 have some balancing factors. So one is uh, you can destruct uh, industrial demand if the price is high enough. But of course, that's bad for for the for the economy. Uh, you have yeah yeah and then you have the winter the, the the temperature and then a third element is is the power sector you have some flexibility in, in the um, in the power sector so if, if gas prices high are high enough you might be able to to switch uh, to coal to some extent I have a very tricky question for Matteo which is uh, at the end of the winter where do you see let's say I don't know c- coming out in in April where do you see gas storage getting out of the winter. It depends on, uh, say, a set of conditions. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would challenge the the idea that we are out of the weeds. That I think there are too many moving mm-hmm. pieces at the moment. You know, a base case scenario where weather remains pretty much, you know, mild as mm-hmm. last year. And there are now major interruptions in terms of flows or LNG coming in and so and blah, blah, blah. Mm. We probably end the season, the winter season, uh, with storage at around 50%, a bit lower than that. That's our estimate at the moment. However, I don't think that there is much room to actually have additional flexibility coming from the demand side mm-hmm. because we are still baking in you know, the assumption that it's mild winter, so everything is not going to increase mm-hmm. demand is basically demand from industrials is basically strained because we are like say between 16 and 70 percent down when with you know major chemical companies and, and other industries which are you know either idle or shut down completely mm-hmm. and we have estimates that you have 60 percent of the industrial capacity across different regions actually running which mm. is already enough so that's already a sign of, you know, a sort of recession, mm. <laughs> which obviously stems so from, give from it the big, the big name. You're dropping the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the big thing here, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I mean, definitely, right? And and that has an impact, of course, on carbon as well. But I don't know, Riham, if you want to reflect a little bit on on what's happening, also, you know, w- with our clients, etc. Um, that are, of, of course, feeling this huge drop in industrial demand goes down. That's because industrial production goes down, right? Yes, indeed. Like, this has been obvious um, since last year because, uh, um, as Matteo has highlighted, so we can see that gas demand from industry is, like, just 16%, 17% below, for, like, 
year on year, let's say. So this translates into less production, of course, um, and less production this we can see it across the industries, um, especially in the gas intensive, and this, this was particular to last year. So you can see this across the sectors like fertilizers producers, uh, cement producers, and chemicals, especially those industries, again, that use gas as a feedstock. And we can see maybe some of the factories are coming back increase in the capacity of production but I think the pace is quite slow and here I'd like to actually to, to return back to Matteo with a question um, about the demand itself so what is your view about the demand in those industries that have been affected or hit hard by the gas crisis do you see them coming back to full capacity anytime soon it's, it's a very broad question and uh, there are um, changes from sector to sector there are exactly. a lot of companies yeah. especially big ones that are currently evaluating whether to stay in Europe or not. Exactly, yeah. For several reasons, and obviously energy prices are... On, on the other hand, how bad can it become, right? I mean, we've seen, uh, if we see these numbers now, uh, now we are at a lower level already for next year, I mean, how much lower does it go? Yeah, that, that's my point. <laughs> I, I don't think that there is, you know, much room to add in terms of flexibility on yeah. the downside. It, it's uh, if, if, we, if we expect something is more on, on the upside... But at the same time, if, if we look at the macro outlook, mm. I think that there is, a, let's say, let's say a, a game now which is played across different areas with mm. the U.S. putting a lot of money into, you know, financing the industries, especially when it's about anything that is energy transition related. And obviously Asia is playing a different game, but more or less kind of similar game going upstream with metals and stuff. And Europe is lagging a bit behind on that side. And I think that European industries are waiting for a, s some sort of response or some sort of, you know, mm. strategic in direction, yeah. which obviously needs to happen. It's a little bit more complicated because obviously we don't function as uh, as the US, so that that, 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 that needs to be a, an agreement across different countries. And that policy response, I mean, if, if they wait for that, that's, that's usually not as easy, right? Because uh, at least if you're asking me, politicians don't just start moving if there is potentially a threat, but once, of course, that is really leading to companies moving elsewhere in a large scale, which is partly already happening, right? But uh, as long as there is no, let's say, public outroar against that, is that really realistic that we see that very quickly happening? Or is the, the, the EU actually rather happy that we're having much lower demand because that actually allows us to be, to an extent, independent from, from Russia, at least over the short term? If I may ask, it's also another question to Matteo here. It's about, um, and maybe to everyone else also, like the deal with industry especially. So you speak about the game of just removing or moving the production elsewhere um, around, like outside Europe. So my question would be, how is the CBAM, and here I'm taking you back to the EU. So how does the CBAM play um, or interplay with all of these rules of, oh, moving out, producing out, producing outside the EU, and then just getting back the um, imports inside the EU just to avoid the high cost of production here? Yeah, it's going to play, uh, let's say, a, a big role, but it's, it's coming down. Yeah, exactly. It's 2026, so yeah. And the, the starting of yeah. that, mm. which is, you know, just a minor impact. And you have yeah. the basin, yeah. 2.5%, until it starts really and having a And you have rate. companies that, you know, they, especially on the industrial side, and I guess your customers are, let's say, pretty familiar with, with, with that. They operate on a yearly basis. Obviously. Yes, of course. You, you, you plan investments for the long term. So mm -hmm. you, you factor that in when you want to open a new factory in mm -hmm. Europe mm -hmm. or whether you are opening a new uh, production line and then you mm -hmm. want to export into Europe. 
but for existing customers, that that's something that will come at a later stage. Yeah. So it's 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 very difficult to bake that to in today's logic when it's about you know paying the bill at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if you make a big bit of a comparison, so we are still talking about fifty euro per megawatt hour pricing. I mean, not speaking about the front months, but for mm-hmm. next year and the year after. Mm-hmm. Which uh, compares to to around we are less than 10 euro pricing in the US, so two three u- uh, d- mm. dollars per mmbtu Henry hub prices, and uh, yeah, that's it's more than five times more expensive uh, to use gas in Europe for the for uh, yeah for the coming years, and uh, yeah, similarly the power prices. So I think Europe has a long term vision having an um, electricity system which is mostly. Um, Set uh, the price is set by renewables, and that can can start to happen in the coming years. But I mean, we need to get there. I mean, there's another issue how how you how you provide flexibility to that system. But maybe in, in five plus years time, you could see uh, European electricity prices really low. So most of the hours being set by renewables, uh, often seeing negative prices. And, and the the key issue is figuring out how to provide flexibility in that environment. Mm. Uh, many industries can again uh, be competitive, especially those uh, which are, have uh, some flexibility in terms of um, uh, running hours. If, if they can uh, run in the, in the off peak hours, so that that can can work. But but I mean, for the coming years. It's it looks like a very could be very struggling, especially if if the gas prices um, stay elevated. Yeah, I mean, and let's speak about that, right? So we we did speak a bit about supply on the gas side, a bit of demand on on the gas side. But if we're really looking into what's then relevant for carbon, that is the spreads, right? Um, the the profit margins that a gas plant, an average efficient gas plant, for example, in Germany, is making, uh, and the same also then for um, for the um, for, for, for coal, right? And if you combine those two, well, you get what's called the fuel switch. Uh, we all know that. So basically saying uh, at what level of an EUA price, for example, is it more profitable to produce with gas or with uh, with coal? And that one on the, on the short term has actually been quite interesting this year because it's been consistently somewhere around 60, for most of the year, and then with the increase in the in the in the last weeks, it, it jumped a little bit, but it's still somewhere in, in most of the time uh, 60 to 80, right? Where where really coal uh, seems to be out of the stack in the short term, right? In the long term, it's maybe a different story because the spreads are still positive, but in the short term, it seems to be out of the stack. And really, where does that leave us? I mean, if we're looking ahead two or three years. And I'm sure you're doing that uh, to understand really what's the demand coming already, the hedging demand of utilities, what's coming in there. Where do you see that go? I'm very fortunate because I rely on great analysts who who foresee a good TNAC on a year-on-year basis. So basically, you are rolling out an analysis where you expect the TNAC, so the total amount of surplus allowances in the system, uh, adjusted with some factors, being at around uh, 1,000 million. But that despite a very ambitious cap, the, the TNAC stays around steady, slightly declining over, over the coming years because, um, yeah, as we discussed, uh, also the renewables coming, so the power sector emissions is on a decline. But more, more interestingly, uh, we need uh, the power hedging, so mostly the lignite and coal-related hedging demand in order to absorb that surplus allowances, so it's around... Um, one one thousand million allowances versus a total amount of uh, emissions in in the, in the coal and lignite around five hundred uh, million. So meaning around at least one 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 and a half years of hedging demand you need to absorb big big chunk of that of that uh, surplus. And if you look you c- look forward on the curve for twenty seven twenty eight 
there is no more positive margin for the lignite plants because as the gas prices drop over time, so 25, 26, 27, so it moved back to, to 30 uh, euro per megawatt hour level, which is still very high, but at but that time the power is priced below 100, so meaning right. that the production cost for a lignite guy is, 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 um, is negative. So the margins are negative, so there's nothing to be hedged. So I think that the risk on the UAs uh, is that between now and, and then, there will be a point where the hedging demand will be less than the total TNEC. I opened a big Pandora box here and I already regret it. Um, so I need to um, rein it in here a little bit, which is, of course, uh, we need to speak a bit also of demand and supply, both on, on, on carbon, right? And um, the mere fact is, of course, also that we have a very strong LRF in the next couple of years. Uh, and the big question is, and that's really what I think we, what you're saying here as well, is how quickly does demand drop versus supply? Because we kind of know where supply is going. But then you also have quite some uh, some shifts around with repower EU volumes, etc. Um, so um, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing funds that have been trying to get short a couple of times uh, so far this year is because 2024 indeed looks quite balanced, right? And a balanced market is basically prone to, to, to developments in, in both sides. But then as we're going into the future, you know, the, the cap, of course, does its work. So we did a little bit of some, some modeling. If we see power emissions drop by 60% compared to 2022 by the year of 2030, that's still not enough really to keep the market balanced. So you would actually need even stronger uh, drops in, in the emissions from that side, unless you have a lot of uh, dropping emissions on the industrial side of, as, as well. Maybe let's play the ball back here to Matteo and say, is that realistic? Are we, you know, if, if Lignite is really out of the stack, at least at current numbers in a couple of years from now, is that really going to happen? Is gas able uh, to close the gap fully? Short answer, yes. I think you know, as everything, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that because you know, we the the European power system is not a copper plate, so you cannot move you know electrons from one side to the other, like from Italy to to the UK or from France to Poland. That there are you know constraints on 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 the grid, so you have quite some local dynamics, and you know it, it's not a fact that we we got back to talk about splitting Germany into two zones, you know, mm. the north and the south because of, you know, those constraints and that, you know, that could play quite a, quite a role in, in the future development of the, of the power market. And speaking of that, the TSO is the transmission system operator in Germany. Uh, there's actually four of them and one of them basically just came out with a statement. The, the coal phase out by 2030 is not feasible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we've come to a point where um, we've started to realize that the energy transition is much more complex than what we thought uh, it would be. Uh, and I, I would say that gas is, is still going to be uh, the driver of leave out of sight here. the energy market, especially in Europe for the for the time being, until, you know, you start getting a lot more supply coming to the market, which is set to be 2026, 2027, mm -hmm. with, you know, new investments coming online in the mm -hmm. US and Qatar. Canada and other, and other areas, you will still have a European market which is going to be gas-driven. TTF, you know, the ICIS TTF is going to drive a lot of the uh, of the European power market as well and carbon. Not all the time, as as you said earlier. You know, this year we observed that there was a slight difference compared to 2022. Obviously, spring was mm. much more driven by other fundamentals. You know, a lot of renewables, <laughs> nuclear coming back, yeah. hydro playing, you know, a, a different role compared to 2022. So you will still have, you know, a different seasonality coming in, uh, you know, popping up in, in, in the next years. 
I think what's certain is that you will still have a lot of volatility across the different markets. And apart from, of course, the volatility, I think we're not giving too much away here, but uh, ICS is uh, about to publish a forecast for the gas market, as I understand. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a peek preview into it. Uh, how is it going to look like? Uh, let's say the second part of our energy foresight value proposition, we started with power and now we're bringing in gas, uh, which is basically the idea behind is to, to have different models that are all uh, connecting, connected to each other and, and, they, and they try to understand the complexity of what we talked about today. So understand w what is driving what, whether it's power at some point, whether it's carbon or whether it's gas. All right, let's, let's try to find a conclusion then. So we talked a lot about supply and demand on the gas side. Of course, there's still a lot of moving factors, uh, potential volatility. Uh, I think from my side, one of the key takeaways is that as, as we see gas impacting fuel switching levels, right? Let's say gas price goes up. Uh, well, that increases the fuel switching levels and that in theory should be bullish for carbon because higher fuel switching level means you have to have a high ca higher carbon price to incentivize that switch. On the flip side, of course, that also impacts industrial production and that is bearish because you have uh, all of a sudden industrials that cannot pay for the gas and a lot of, of course, the industrial production needs gas as a fuel source. And so really we have those two effects and uh, the big question for me is, you know, which one is stronger at what level? And of course, I guess there are There are other concerns coming in. How does the economy go in, you know, in total? Like, what's the short term versus the uh, versus the long term? But in in general, still my takeaway, even after this discussion, is rather on a bearish side, unless we have a cold winter uh, again, and uh, and then it can of course turn around quite quickly. But we would also need, in that case, industrial production to somehow pick up again especially because, at least for carbon, next year seems quite balanced in terms of supply and demand on CO2. But yeah, that's to see. Riham, what's your takeaway? Well, my takeaway is that the complexity is here, um, as usual, like just defining the elements about the gas, EU, e-ways and uh, other elements on the market, like there is a lot of complexity. My position remains sideways to bearish, and this is just because I'd like to... Not to predict or not read so much into the demand from Asia. So I think this is one factor on my side, like just to look at and consider like how sensitive the market would react for any, let's say, discrepancies in the gas demand in uh, North Asia and then like how the gas market would be sensitive to it in Europe, despite the fact that there is plenty of supply and the security and health of supply in the continent. Matthias, what's your takeaway uh, from this discussion here? No, I... It's it's hard to say at the moment. You know what forecast we have is is for another mild winter, especially the, the, let's say um, the starting of of the winter. That if you look at different weather forecasts, you mm. see that um, between January and and, and February, uh, there might be let's say very violent episodes, like very let's say uh, spikes in terms of drops in temperatures and and snow episodes and stuff like that. But obviously that depends on the intensity those are things that usually the market uh like because they can you know ride those mm -hmm. waves especially if there, are, there is a lack of other events mm -hmm. uh if i have to sum it up you know as i said at the beginning i'm bearish overall but any small factor any small deviance to you know that balance that mm -hmm. we uh, we have discussed is just you know another spike coming Yeah, and and you know, we are seeing it with with the Australian strike that it's it's it's, it's novel which is still playing at the moment, and, and every minor detail is just you know an uptick in the gas price. You know, 
regardless of the fact that it doesn't really impact the European balance at the moment. Even if it's just sentiment. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, so that leaves us uh, to the final words from Gerge, please. Yeah, I'm aligned with uh, Matteo. So I, I also believe that um, the supply and balances are super tight. So uh, we, um, so the, the Europe is um, ahead of some some difficult years, or, or let's say some uh, challenging years. Uh, and, and yeah, it, there are lots of upside and downside risk in the meanwhile, and we go through that period. But I think in the end, uh, we will see a more um, more bearish. Uh, impacts uh, but how to trade around it's not that straightforward due to this spike so you could be really burned by by uh, and sudden even which like australia japan or wherever happens in around the world speaking of being burned um i learned uh, early in my career on a trading floor that if everyone is bearish then you better be bullish uh, because if everyone's bearish probably everyone has already uh, set up their position and then there's nobody else to sell And with those remarks, uh, I think we can conclude it. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining. And this concludes our episode. This podcast is brought to you by Virtus Environmental Finance. Join us every month for new episodes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. Stay tuned for our next episode.